You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On Wednesday, September 27th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a seminar titled Organizing for Freedom, Then and Now. The event featured a discussion with Hollis Watkins, founder and president of Southern Echo, SNCC veteran, freedom singer, and author of Brother Hollis, The Sankopa of a Movement Man. Watkins was joined by Eric Leslie, mid-career MPA, class of 2014, founder and lead organizer of Union Capital Boston. The talk was moderated by Marshall Gantz, senior lecturer in public policy at Harvard Kennedy School. The event was an installment of the Ash Center's Race in American Politics series. Listen in. Good afternoon. Let's try again. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. All right. Thank you. Uh, welcome. Uh, my name is Marshall Gans, and uh, on behalf of the Ash Center and the Race and American Politics uh, series, uh, to welcome you to this conversation with Hollis Watkins, uh, activist, organizer, teacher, leader in the freedom movement over the course of the last six decades and now director of Southern Echo, and well, and now author of Brother Hollis, The Sankofa of a Movement Man. So let's have an applause for the new book. Uh, Hollis was born in 1941 in uh, Lincoln County, Mississippi, uh, the youngest son of the 12 children of sharecroppers John and Lena Watkins. Shortly after graduating from high school in 1960, he met Mississippi NAACP President Medgar Evers, and in 1961 was the first Mississippi student to become involved in the Mississippi Voting Rights Project of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, led by Bob Mosley. Uh, as a SNCC organizer, he canvassed communities, conducted meetings, organized sit-ins, walkouts, other direct action, voter registration drives, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, and for his effort was jailed at least six times, serving real time. He was also one of the initiators of the SNCC Freedom Singers. Um, from 1968 to 72, he served as director of social services of the Mississippi Head Start program, uh, at the same time organizing co-ops and buying clubs. Uh, in, and since 1967, he began to manage political campaigns, uh, beginning with the election of Robert Clark, the first African-American elected to the Mississippi legislature since Reconstruction from Holmes County. At the same time, he was acquiring experience in the economic sector, sector managing agricultural enterprises, including those of the Nation of Islam. In 1989, he founded Southern Echo, a nonprofit leadership development organizing and training organization that serves individual groups and communities throughout the South. He's received numerous community service awards from Southern Christian Leadership Conference and many others. Uh, he is uh, chairman of the board of veterans of the Mississippi uh, Civil Rights Movement, serves on the boards of Highlander Research and Education Center and the Southern Sustainable Agriculture Working Group. Please welcome Hollis Watkins. What are the rest of us doing here? Um, uh, I want to ask Eric Leslie uh, first to introduce himself with particular reference to the role Hollis played in his life. 
So good afternoon, everybody. Um, I, I do, I feel like it's, um, I'm sitting next to kind of, you know, Bill Russell and, and Will Chamberlain or something, and, I, and I'm like the 12th man on uh, the current squad trying to make the team, or the, you know, the talk show where they have the celebrity and then the second guest kind of comes out. I'm just, I'm, I'm touched to be up here, mainly because I, I was a Kennedy uh, student. I'm a mid-career from 2014. Uh, but what brought me to, to this space was I was had the great fortune uh, when I was 15 years old being from Cambridge to join a youth organization called Project Hip Hop and travel south to connect with the organizing work of the civil rights struggles both then and now, now being 1995, uh, and build a relationship and mentorship uh, with Hollis that continued in our travels to South Africa and then interning uh, for Southern Echo for, Southern, for several summers. Um, and uh, to learn, I think, two key things, and then I'm going to be quiet really the rest of the time. <laughs> but to touch on just two key things to weave it together in today's talk of learning from Hollis and from Southern Echo the intergenerational organizing model that to impact change as SNCC set out to do uh, successfully in the 60s required young people. Uh, and it required that work also to continue over many generations, that it wasn't a mobilization or a moment in time. And here I was decades later uh, seeing that work continue in the same counties and the same spaces as it had been done back during Freedom Summer. And to realize that there was a way in which I could be a part of it uh, and that I could contribute, maybe not in the Delta because it was just too far from home, too rural, and too hot for me. <laughs> But that um, there were ways, especially as you know, someone who is white, male, privileged from Cambridge, to learn about organizing practices and contribute to fights for uh, racial equality and opportunity um, onward. And, and that was where those lessons uh, stayed with me from a 15-year-old man to now a couple years older today. I'm delighted to be here. Welcome. I'm going to go back and sit on the edge of the bench. So, you know. <laughs> and uh, what you say, what you do. Right? <laughs> and, and thanks to those inspirations, um, I'm, I came here and, and took Professor Gans's class and founded an organization called Union Capital Boston. Uh, and we work to build social capital as an, a network of power for opportunity and transformative change in our communities in Boston here. A new, a new way of connecting people through digital resources, uh, and incentives, and then tried and true organizing relationships one by one through institutions in the city. Uh, we have 900 members uh, and kind of thousands of hours of engagement and opportunity that have led to real um, sustainable change for both individuals and the organizations we work with. So, just in the last three years since I was here in, in your class. Good, good, good testimony so, for the organizing class. That's that's what they want. That was my organizing project in the organizing in the spring semester. Um, I, I, I don't know if I'd be here if it hadn't been for Hollis. Um, when I was 20 uh, and a junior here at Harvard College and volunteered for the Mississippi Summer Project, uh, the project to which I was assigned uh, was Holmes County, which was led by Hollis. So he was my first boss. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and boy, was I lucky. Uh, because as a mentor, as a teacher, as an organizer, as a supporter, it shaped my whole experience of the civil rights movement uh, and, and taught me like to listen 
not talk so much, listen, ask questions, uh, pay attention to the people. The people are what matters. Uh, and the kind of spirit of hopefulness and, and, and quiet confidence, despite being up against some pretty damn tough stuff at the time, that, um, you know, I don't know, it sort of, it certainly gave me a lot of confidence and hope and connected me then into the movement, uh, which then really changed my life because that's where I got involved in organizing and continued. And we were just recalling in the other room that that uh, in the Holmes County Project, uh, another, uh, well actually my roommate there, another of Thomas's protégés was a young man named Mario Savio. And Mario Savio, uh, when he left Mississippi, went right back to Berkeley uh, where, as a result of setting up a table to raise money for the South uh, for the campaign for SNCC, um, which the university shut down, uh, began the free speech movement, which was then another whole deal. So, Hollis, you got a lot to answer for. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and well, so, uh, why'd you write this book? <laughs> well, you say I got a lot to answer for before I get into the, the book. As somebody said in one of their musical pieces, says, I stand accused of teaching you this thing. That's a little sad part. <laughs> <laughs> Before I, I answer the question of why I wrote this book, won't be long. I got another student that I want to recognize. He's from Mississippi, and he's come to a lot of workshops and training sessions that I had in Mississippi. I love him. Encourage him to continue to go down the road and do good things. I'm talking about David Bickley. Let folks see you, man. I know. This is right here. Another one of my students. Why I wrote the book? That's a good question. The long and the short of it is because it needed to be done. People were constantly asking me, Hollis, when you going to write your book? And I began to think about what they said, and it came to me that the book that other people have done that you have read, who did they talk about in their book? Looking at that mostly, they talked about what we call the big wigs, you know, Dr. King, you know, John Lewis, Kwame Ture, you know, all the people. And they left out and didn't mention the people who were the real heroes and sheroes in Mississippi that made the movement in Mississippi possible. When Marshall was living, he wasn't living in a motel. He was living with some of the local people in the county that we were working in. 
So I got to thinking about that. So I said, yes, Hollis, it is time for you to write your book. And on top of that, which I, the people had been leaving out, they had a number of facts that was incorrect. So I said, I got to do what I can to straighten out some of these incorrect facts that people have and lift up some of the people that I know who were the major players. To give you an example of just how far, this is an extreme, only so at once, where a certain lady had written a book and she had Jimmy Travis who was shot in the delta between Itabina and Greenwood, she had him having been killed on that. And I'm so thankful that I found that before Jimmy passed because he had an opportunity to talk with the, the lady to get things straightened out. But that was the major motivation. I wanted to talk about people like Ozell Mitchell, Alma Carnegie. I wanted to talk about people like E.W. Steptoe, Lewis Allen. You know, I wanted to mention them. Hartman Turnbull, Mrs. Hazel Palmer, you know, of Hines County. So there w the name go the list goes on and on. These people had not been mentioned. So I said I got to mention. Plus, I said I got a story that's worth telling of my own, <laughs> and I don't need to sit around and wait for other people to tell my story. So believe it or not, I got to talking on the tape record had a little back set because the first time I sat and I talked to a tape recorder for about an hour to an hour and a half, and when I got ready to play it back, wasn't nothing on it. <laughs> Didn't have nothing. But it was about me being able to tell my own story and to tell the story of many of the local people in Mississippi like Winston Hutchins, like Debbie Hutchins, and I can go on and on. So that's the basic reason that I wrote the book. And the other reason has to do with, I believe that if people look at what I experienced growing up as the youngest of 12 children who were born to sharecroppers, and the life that I had to live, came out to be not too messed up, <laughs> I think people could profit by it if they read about it and learned about some of the things that my family went through, how we did that. And we didn't have money. We had virtually no money. But we never were poor. That's one thing. We never were poor because we fed people in the community that didn't have food to eat. We made 
elder people, be they female, women that had children and a runaway husband, whatever. We fed those people. And you know how much money my parent made per year when I first enrolled in Tulu College? They made a little less than $700 per year. So that's why I wrote my book. So what, uh, what caused you to get involved in the movement in the first place? The thing that caused me to get involved in the movement in the first place is a few words that my father spoke to me. Wow. And I say to the rest of us fathers today, we need to make sure we speak some words to our children because it may be that that word will germinate into how those few little words my daddy spoke to me germinate. Now, what were those words? You know, my daddy would talk to especially the boys in the evening at different times. But he looked at me and he said one day, he said, son, the one thing I want you to know, he said, you must always, always stand up for what is right, even if you are the only one standing. I thought about that, and I said, well, you know, if I'm going to stand up for what's right, that means I got to stand up against all that stuff that's wrong. So I dwell on that. And finally, it came to me that I needed to get involved in some human rights or civil rights activities. Didn't know exactly how to do all of that, but I met Medgar Evers. Medgar Evers invited me to come to a, a meeting of the youth chapter of the NAACP. I went, that sounds good. I said, yeah, I'm going to be a part of this thing. The problem is that they wasn't putting on no activities that caught my attention. And in the meantime, while I'm doing these little bitty things with the youth chapter, the NAACP, a friend girl of mine came to me and said, Holly, said, guess what? He said, Dr. Martin Luther King and some other big folks is out in Macomb, other big folks, you know, I'm talking about size. <laughs> the other big folks is out in Macomb having classes with folks. And she described to me exactly where they were having them. Berglund Town, I mean, at the Masonic Temple on top of the Berglund Town Supermarket. I got my three best buddies, and we went in looking for Dr. King. When we got to the place, we walked in, and we saw this little old bitty man, you know, standing there, and we asked him, said, are you Dr. King? <laughs> you ready? He said, no, I'm, I'm Bob. Bob? <laughs> you know. So, okay, well, we, you know, well what you doing? <laughs> you know, we're looking for Dr. King. What, what are you doing? So he explained that he was there trying to get black people registered to vote. And in order for that to happen, they had to fill out this form. And 
He gave us a form for us to try filling it out. And we fill it out and we say, if you had gone to the courthouse and they treated you fair, you would be a registered voter. So we said, we'll work with you. So we decided to work with him. And within about two weeks, this young, young Mississippian that had become uh, a something in D.C. But anyway, it was Marion Barry. Marion Barry flew into town and said, I'm Marion Barry. I'm the chairperson of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And we want to talk with you about some things because SNCC got more than one project. In addition to voter registration, SNCC has a project to deal with direct action. I didn't know what that meant. So I asked him, said, well, what do you mean by direct action? So he explained it. He said, young people forming their own organization all across the country. They're looking at the areas and places that segregated that won't allow black people to come in there. And that's what these organizations are doing. And I want to challenge you to start an organization here in Macomb. And whoop, there it was. In two or three days, we had the Pike County Nonviolent Direct Action Committee that was preparing itself to look at all of the places that didn't allow black folks to come and have some demonstrations there. We set the date. You know, it's kind of like you set your wedding date. We set the date when we were going to go have a demonstration at the Macomb Public Library. We showed up that morning, all eagle-eyed, ready to go. We said, we're going to call the world, see who's with us and who's not. We went down through the roll of the 22 members that we had on our committee. And as it turned out, only two of us were ready to go. The other said, our parents said, no, we better not do it, not all of these. So that was it, only two of us. So I looked at Curtis, and Curtis looked at me. And he said, yeah, we're going to go. We're going to get arrested today. We will not come back not having been arrested. So we went to the library. <laughs> Hadn't done the research like we should have at the library to know that the library on that door that day was closed. <laughs> so we went to the library. The library was closed. And looked, I looked at Curtis before he looked at me. So I said, I said yeah, we're going to get arrested today. Library was closed. <laughs> then he said, no, where's lunch counter? It's right back down the street. So we turned around and went down to Woolworth's lunch counter and got arrested <laughs> trying to order a cup of coffee. And on that deal, I spent 34 days in jail before getting out. So that's a little bit of how my early beginning with uh, SNCC got started. Caused me to go to jail that time, caused me to go to jail, you know, some other time. I guess they knew we were coming because when we got to the Woolworths lunch counter, police was already in the store. And we took our seat, and once we took our seat, 
the waitress ran to another end of the county and the police arrested her, charged with refusing to obey an officer and disturbing the peace. But it was that little group of young people that grew into being a much larger group that was really very instrumental in seeing that the movement in Mississippi continued to grow and grow. I often wonder today, both of my parents are deceased, I often wonder what would have happened to me if I had told them all of what I was going to do. <laughs> See, I told them, I said, I won't be back tonight. <laughs> That's truthful. Because <laughs> you don't lie to my daddy. <laughs> I said, I won't be back tonight. I said, well, why not, sir? I said, I'm going to spend the night in Macomb <laughs> with some other friends of mine. <laughs> I didn't tell them it was going to be based on me having had a, a demonstration. And they just said, well, okay. Well, you take care of yourself and be good. So I was one and the two, myself and Curtis. Because like I say, if my daddy had said no, then I wouldn't have been able. So that's why I had to come up with a very strategic and tactful way <laughs> to present it to my father. But as it turned out, my father and mother was really initially the only supporters that I had that were in my family, you know, about me uh, being involved in the civil rights movement. I'm, I'm sure that folks have a lot, people have a lot of questions. I just, I'll ask a couple more and then, then we'll open it up. <coughs> um, so, so Hollis, you're a long distance runner. You really are. How have you sustained yourself over the years to keep, you know, to keep, not just keep the hope, but to keep the work going? Well, number one, the thing that I did to keep the work going was to make sure I kept myself going. You know, I constantly made friends with people. I treated people you know, with respect, I talked about the movement to them. And as different ones have asked me, say, well, what was it that motivated you so much? And I said, one of the major things that motivated me was the elderly people, understanding what they had gone through in years past and how they had enough nerve and strength to say, go ahead on, baby. Do what you're doing, because it needs to be doing, done. Any way I can help, I'll help. You know, and you can't really imagine how much it meant to me. You're out there trying to get people registered to vote, doing plans, and you come down the street and you see a lady that's sitting on the porch that's older than I am now. And I'll tell you how old I am. <laughs> you tell the difference. 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 You tell the 
Because, for example, one of the major lessons that I learned was not to assume in determining who the leaders of a community were. I said that because we were trying to find a church that would let us have meetings and to store some food and clothes that Dick Gregory and Harry Belafonte had brought in for the poor people in the Mississippi Delta. We were turned down by all of the churches that we went to, and I was coming down McLaurin Street in Greenwood, and one of the little old ladies come and said, come here, baby. And I went over, and she said, I see you ain't from here. I said, no, ma'am. She said, well, what are you doing here? And I explained. I was working with folks in voter registration and all of that and was trying to find a church that would allow us to have meetings and to store some of the items. And she said, why don't you use my church? I can? Yeah. So come by right after lunch tomorrow and I have the keys for you. And I'm telling you, I did that. And when I went by there about three minutes after 12, she reached in her little pocket and pulled out the keys and gave me the keys to the, her church. Now, there was another man preacher and about four or five male deacons that had told me, no way possible you coming up in here. And I didn't even make fun at him to let them know that they wasn't the real boss of that church. <laughs> Went on down. So that's one of the ways that I have been able to do that. The other thing is that I have kept and made sure young people get involved and is willing and ready and are doing things. See, because if I bring young people in, then I'm committed to them. I got to help them out. I can't bring them in and say, all right, now you got it. You're on your own and gone. So I had young folks that I had to look after, long, young people that I had to see about. And through all of that, it kept me interested and motivated to the extent that I had to continue to do the work. Later on in 1989 is when I started Southern Echo. And the reason that came about is because people in Mississippi look forward to me aiding and assisting and teaching them and doing all of the different things from voter registration to running for all of the different political office. And I said, I can't do all of this by myself. But what I need to do is start an organization teach others how to do what I do, and in that process, <coughs> then I have more people to work with the people in the community. And having bright young folks to come through, like David and a lot of the others, that motivated me. As I say, when I was young, I got my motivation from the older folks, and now I'm a little bit older. <laughs> I get mine from the young people. Yeah, I, I think of when I go to class, 
I get twice a week to have a conversation with the teacher. I hear you. It's just a great blessing. Yeah, absolutely. Great blessing. Um, over all these years of ups and downs and back and forth, and what's been your biggest disappointment? My biggest disappointment has been older folks. My biggest disappointment has been older people. Um, I say that because the older people had a lot of information, knowledge that they could have and should have shared with young people, but did not. And as a part of that process, too many of the older people became gatekeepers, as I, I call it. They open the gate, they close the gate, and they're not doing their part. And actually, they become stumbling blocks. They know it's time for the baton to be passed. They know that, but they won't pass it. They know it's time for young people to do something, and they are in the way, but won't get out of the way. They know it's time to have different conversations with young people, but they won't have it. And that's why I say to young folks, I don't know about nobody else, but let me tell y'all one thing, the child, child, when you know it's time for you to do what needs to be done, you know, for our people, don't let older folks keep you from doing that. You try to work along with them. But as I say, when it's finally said and done, if I won't do what I'm supposed to do with whom I'm supposed to do it the way I'm supposed to do it, don't run over me. Hear me? Don't you run over me. I can run fast now, even right now. <laughs> don't run over me. If you can't figure out how to go around me, you can't figure out how to go over me or under me, just pick my old gray head self up and Mr. Hollis, you just sit right here. <laughs> we, we'll be back in a little bit. We'll be checking on you. And you go straight on down that path that I was blocking and do what needs to be done. So that's that's where I am, you know, on that, that piece. In, in all seriousness, there's a lot of us feel that we didn't get the kind of respect and recognition that we should have gotten, but could have gotten if Dr. King and John Lewis, you know, and by Rustin and a few other folks, if they had not been around, I could have gotten some publicity. A lot of us feel that way. And now our little bulb has grown down from a 200 watts to a 40 watt. And here we are up with a 40 watt bulb trying to talk to you that's got a 200 watt bulb and in most cases we won't even allow you to walk in the back door because we know 
you got a 200 watt bulb and when you walk in what happens if you got two or three lights that come on and shine your focus go to the highest watt bulb the focus is going to go to you and you're not going to like that and one of the things that actually happens believe it or not is that they don't inform and encourage the young people to come to many of those community meetings. So, you have to, don't, don't run open, you know, from in the way, just can't figure that out, set me over there and, and go on. One, one, one more question on that is, you know, taking a look at where things are today, Mm -hmm. uh, it's certainly not where I expected them to be. I mm -hmm. don't imagine it's where you expected them to be. Right. So what's really changed? What has really changed? It depends on where you are and how you look at it because you got positive elements and you got negative elements. So, number one, it is left up to us to determine what role the negative elements is going to play and what role the positive elements is going to play. Because we have not gotten rid of all of them. They are still there. You know, that's one of the... The, the reason we used to sing the freedom song is ain't going to let nobody turn me around. You know, yes, I see all these elements out here, but this element of negativism is in my way of making the progress that's supposed to be done. Because you're a negative element that's in the way, yes, I'm going to run through you or right over you because I will not allow the negative elements that you have and is portraying to keep me from doing what needs to be done, to keep my other friends and community from doing what it needs to be done, doing what it needs to be doing just because of your positive, I mean, your negative elements. And that's how we have to look at it. We have to think about the strength that we have in ourselves. And as the song says, don't let nobody turn around. Yeah, you may be a big so-and-so and so, you know, but I can bring you down the side. You go with that determination. I don't want to do that because that's an unnecessary battle. I want you to come on and do what you know need to be done. And that's why I talk about overcoming the fear. And to overcome fear means that you don't allow the fear that you have to keep you from doing what you know need to be done, when it need to be done, to and with whom it need to be done. That's how I look at today. Let me open it, open this up now, and, and um, we can start with a couple of questions. Then we'll start gathering a few questions at a time. Uh, but uh, let's start. Uh, oh, would you identify yourself? And Jim Marshall. Uh, yeah, I think here comes the mic. One of the veterans of the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement. 
friend and brother to Hollis. One of the questions that I always asked and saw had to do with the fact that young people in the movement that I met and I spoke with talked about not being able to go home because the little their parents had would be in danger. And talked about parents not backing up young people because the little that they had was threatened. I'm not sure it was you, but there are other Mississippi people from the movement that I heard they just didn't go home for any number of years because they were worried that the Klan was going to attack their family. Did you find this was the case? Well, when I was, when the, when the Klan and folks discovered that I was in the movement, they sent word to my father that, Don, you get that boy out of that mess, the white folks are going to help you. And my daddy said, Hollis is my youngest child of 12. He said, you didn't help me with the 11 before him. And he said, he has just finished school, high school, and you didn't help me with him. So why do you think I will believe that okey-doke that you are pushing out there? That's in essence what my father said. They got angry with my father for sending that kind of message back. And they told him, if you don't get that boy out of that mess, then we're going to come down there and get some of your ends with the SS, with another letter in front of it. But we're going to come down there and get some of your SS. So my daddy sent word back and said, yeah, I got some of that. <laughs> said, but y'all got some of that too. And say, if you want to get some of this I got, come on down here because I am prepared to get my share of all of that SS that you bring. They decided that they didn't want it. They never came. I said that to to say that you give up on the, the least little obstacle and to become overpowered by fear. See, see, something like that should motivate us more and more to uh, not to run away, but to get together with our community, our neighbor. A little mobilizing, a little organizing, that's what that takes. But if we want to sit up and say, I'm here and I'm prepared and willing to take whatever it is that you put on me, that no, uh -uh, I'm a man just like you. You come up in here with me, then it's going to be me or you. But see, we don't look at it like that. No, we don't look at it. You got a right 
to defend yourself. And here again, the clans don't want to be spotted out and shot. You know, if it comes to that, and in most cases, I don't think it will. But I'm saying, I as I as a parent, if it comes down to somebody killing me or my child, I ain't gonna stand and say, "Well, maybe you'll change later on down the road, and we can get together in the great by and by." No. Uh-uh, that, that, that ain't what's happening. There are other ways that things can be dealt with, and that's what we have to do, is to look at other means by which things can be done. And I'm not saying that the, the folks didn't go back because they was afraid of this. I'm sure that was a natural fear. But we have to look at alternative ways in doing and that's what needed to have happened, is that the family needed to have gotten together and come up with alternative ways. I remember the Klan um, burned a cross uh, about a mile from my father's house. My father got the cross and he put it in the middle of the, street, the, the road, you know, and the road scrapers and what have you came through and my daddy told him to no so somebody burnt that they wanted to make a fire and they run off and forgot the wood so you tell them they can come on back and get the wood because ain't nobody else gonna move it so you know we we have to be willing and ready to look at all the different possibilities and not assume not assume because anytime we assume we open the door for negative consequences. We open the door for negative consequences. See, I come from a family that got a whole bunch of preachers and what have you. And I'm told one of them went to hunting once, bear hunting with a friend of his. And he got out in the edge of the woods and was checking the guns and the gun fired. The bear was in close proximity of the gun firing and the bear started towards the one and and he said he dropped on his knees and said oh my god but please give this bear religion and said when that <laughs> so when that so when that bear got to him so that bear stood up over him and said god i thank you for this food <laughs> so, you know let's get off of assuming okay <laughs> Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right here. Uh, Brother Hollis, thank yes. you so much. I love you, first of all. And, uh, love you, too, brother. You mentioned me when I was 18 at Tougaloo, and I know you would go places and barely had gas money. So I, I love you deeply for that. And uh, Mr. Gaines, I think one change that has happened is we don't have to live in terror. We don't have to live in fear. At least that's one of the things I inherited. I'm from Macomb and Bearton, mm -hmm. where all this yeah. took place. So I was mentored by people who were fearless. So it's not in my manner to be afraid. 
Uh, I do have one question. Okay. Uh, could you sing something for us? <laughs> <coughs> can I sing something? Let's see if I can get my voice right. <coughs> I was born by the river in a little tent just like the river I've been running every day. That's not the one I want to sing. I want to invite all of you to, to help me with this song. This is a song that I, that I did in honor of Nelson Mandela. Um, let me see the hands of those that will help me sing it. All of you that ain't willing to help me sing this song, get up and get out. <laughs> sing it anyway. <laughs> this is a song for our children. Oh, Mandela, and you say, Mandela. Oh, Mandela, Mandela. Oh, Mandela, Mandela. We're going to set Mandela free. That's the kickoff, all right? Let's see if we can get it. Oh, Mandela, Mandela. Oh, Mandela, Mandela. Oh, Mandela, Mandela. We want to set Mandela free. Mandela, he crossed the land. Shouting, people, take a stand. Oh, Mandela, Mandela. Oh, Mandela. Mandela, oh Mandela, Mandela, we're gonna set Mandela free. Cape Town, Soweto, freedom comes in a part go. Oh Mandela, Mandela, oh Mandela, Mandela, oh Mandela, Mandela. We're gonna set Mandela free. The rich says yes, the poor says no. We wonder where did both go? Oh Mandela, Mandela, oh Mandela, Mandela, oh Mandela, Mandela. We're gonna That's another thing is that we have to get to the point where we are willing to give and receive. See, I've given this brother a lot of instruction. Best of his ability, he carried them out. So he had one for me. Now, what was I to say? Well, I ain't ready to sing no song. I ain't, you know. So we both, both young and older, have to be willing to give and take in our work just like we, we did just then. Who else had the hand? And then we'll go into the back. Cynthia Levinson, I write for children. You know my particular um, interest. I wonder if you would talk a bit about um, Highlander and that influence. You on them and then, and then you. Highlander 
is a very historical place. Most all of the, the well-known civil rights workers at some point in time came through Highland Research and Educational Center that's in New Market, Tennessee. Back in earlier years, Highlander was located on Mount Eagle. But the white folks didn't like it because this was white folks and black folks coming together doing business. So they decided that they would do Highlander the way they used to doing by the black folks, firebomb. So Highlander moved to another area. Rosa Parks, for example, it was her visit and her trip to Highlander that gave her the little extra strength and the motivation she needed to be able to not give her up her seat, you know, on the bus. You know, I first went to Highlander in 1961 as a part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. You know, Bob Moses, you know, John Lewis, you know, Jim Foreman, Kwame Ture, all of us, we have gone through Highlander. Highlander is still there, a place where you can bring your group to have your own meetings where you might rest a little bit easier. It's a place where you can arrange to come to Highlander to be a part of and receive extra training in the areas that you need training. So it's still there. Highlander is still there for all of us. And as the old saying said, it looks like it's getting gooder and gooder. I see a balance between young and old really coming about and taking place at Highlander. So I want to encourage you to look at it, go to it, visit it, assist it in any way and every way you can that also includes giving us some money. They tricked me in that board thing. I was supposed to have gotten off the board a long time ago, but the year I was supposed to get off the board, they decided that they didn't want to give me, this is how they put it to me, they didn't want to give me, you know, a four-year term on the board. You know, I'm thinking, hey, I done did something wrong. I'm getting out, out of here. And they said they had made me an emeritus board member. So... <laughs> So I'm stuck with them. <laughs> now, come on up to see us. Back in the back, there was a question way back there. Yeah. Um, thanks. Thanks for being here. Um, not to bear God, but God bless you. <laughs> um, there's a, a song that you do, a favorite song of the ones that you do, if I'm not mistaken, um, that I wonder if you might consider including in your repertoire this afternoon. And I think what I, the part I remember goes something like this. Well, I'm a demonstrating GI from Fort Bragg. 
the way they treat my people, it makes me mad. And then I don't. You know that I couldn't stand still because my home is in Danville. Can you talk a little bit about that song? Because that's a great song. <laughs> Thank you. This is a situation where you had a veteran from the military that came home and he was not given the kind of treatment that veterans deserved and usually did get. So he was treated. Um, I'm just trying to remember his name. His name just flew right by. But at any rate, he came and he was discriminated and he was saying that of all of the things that he's been been through, you know, here they were going against him, not giving him the things that he deserved. So in, in a process of trying to identify himself, that's where it says he had to demonstrate, even though he was in the military, just like everybody else, he had to be a part of the movement. So he said that he was a demonstrating GI, had been stationed at Fort Bragg. So the way they treated his people made him mad. He could not stand still because he was a demonstrating GI from Fort Bragg. And his home was in Dansville, Dansville, Virginia. I, it's been a long time since I've heard that I'll, I have to look it up and, and, and pull it out. All right. Thank you. Sure. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Oh, you got somebody over there? Okay. And then, and then we'll go back over here. Nakia Jean Charles of Cathedral High School. Um, I'm sorry, a little, little bit louder? Nakia Jean Charles, Cathedral High School, a part of St. Stephen's Youth Program. Um, so, like, these around these days, like right now, I've been thinking a lot about mass incarceration because I know it's been taking a, a huge toll on our brothers and sisters. But like, I wanted to hear your opinion and any solutions to how we can end mass um, mass incarceration. Thank you. Well, there's one thing that that we need to look at, which I, I, I fight for and have been fighting for a long time is to kick out all of these no good elected officials we got <laughs> and put some better ones in, in their place. That's one thing we can do and start. You know, they lie, bring them out and make them lie. You know, and here again, you record and write down what they say in the process of trying to get there. And once they get there, if they don't follow through on their commitment, then we have to make sure that we publicize their lack of doing what they said that they were going to do. And I'm not saying publicize it only through doing a radio spot or something like that, you know, but call special meetings, go to the churches, you know, ask for permission to talk about 
something that is in the process of destroying your community. See, we have to become a little bit better mobilized. And once we become a little bit better mobilized, we can become organized. But that's where we got to go. And here again, we have got to get some of our brave, strong, young people and put them in office that ain't scared. I mean, you look at a lot of the things. I don't know about other communities, but when I look at a lot of the black communities down south, with the things that I see some of them brothers doing down there, they ain't scared of nothing or nobody. Told I said, I believe they got our freedom song and, and sang it maybe too much. You know, one of the freedom, one of the freedom songs that ain't scared of nobody, cause I want my freedom. I want my freedom. I want my freedom. Ain't scared of nobody. Well, that's who you see in a lot of us. Because, see, if we sit around and if we wait for some of these scared folks do what needs to be done, it will never be done. It will never be done. We have to begin to take matters into our own hands understand the different processes by which we can make those moves and move in the position ourselves, you know, where, and we have to be honest about it. It's like, I, I like to use my sister all the time because she's a great example, you know, in terms of using folks that scared of white folks. You know, I tell people a lot of times, because she has gotten off into politics, is working and doing doing different things. And, you know, sometimes they talk about, well, your sister is such a wonderful person. She is so nice, and she's blah, 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 blah. And I think we can use her as a look. Let me make this statement first. Do not appoint my sister to anything that she might have to do that goes against what any of the white folks want. I said, because if you do that, you got a losing battle because she will not go against what the white folks tell her to do. That's my beloved sister. I love her and I love her, but she's just, just scared. And she will not do that. But it's, a, it's about overcoming fear, and it's about being truthful and honest with ourselves about who we are and what we say we would do. See, too many of us are told too many lies to us as a part of the, of the running for different, position, different positions and have not come through and we've not set them like we used to do a long time ago in, in the church. I know I, I grew up in the AME church and I know back then you know, you got the sinners are doing all this kind of, we bring them and set them on the morning bank. You know, so we need to bring some of these folks that we got out there that's been lying about what they're going to do, knowing that they won't get up and do anything and put them in the places that they really need to be. Thanks. Um, ben Neymar Gross, I'm a PhD student at Tufts. Uh, thank you for, for joining us. So we, we just sang a song about Mandela, and you you mentioned that you first went to Highlander in 1961. That was the year before Mandela was arrested and sentenced to prison, spent 27 years in prison. 
clearly there's some learning, some solidarity between the anti-apartheid struggle and the civil rights movement here in the U.S. So I'd, I'd love to hear you talk a bit about that, how it started, what it was like, what, um, what learning happened back and forth. You know, in, in, in talking with, with the brothers, you know, over, over there, it's really not that much different because it all boils down to a group of people being deprived, discriminated against by another group of people. And just like over here, there are a lot of people over there that was afraid, just like we got a lot of people afraid over here. So the question becomes, and see, we, we hate to do that over here. You know, we hate to, to call my brother out and say, look, I know and you know that what you're doing is not right, what happened. So as your friend, as your brother, I'm asking you, as one of the songs said, to change your ways and be on the, on the, on the field to help our people rather than to do things that's going to be beneficial. See, it's too often... We're too afraid to call one another's hand or to call one another out when we see them doing stuff that we know is wrong, things, doing things that we know is detrimental. And this is some of the things that happen. It's, it's just that uh, over there, the brothers had to take things to a whole other different level. One of the things that the media did to try to give the world a different kind of a picture of, of what was actually happening in so many instances, the brothers explained to us this whole thing about how the media publicized them robbing food trucks and everything. And they said, hell yeah. Hell yeah, we, everyone we could get. And we knew in order to get the food truck, we had to kill the driver. And that's what we did. But when they got the truck, what did they do? They went down in the poor communities where that people was and passed out all of the food that was on the truck to that people. But see, that's not the viewpoint that we got over here about them burning and destroying trucks. So we have to make sure we first get the correct information. And the struggle over there was not very much different from our struggle over here. And most of the things that was done was done by young people. There were a lot more young people involved in the civil rights movement than it was the older people, but they were working together. They were working together. They made plans together. And we should remember that there is nothing that directly affects young people that don't either directly or indirectly affect older people and vice versa. So the thing that affects you are the things that affect me. So we need to be coming together and working it out together. And that's where our fault lies is that we 
can't figure out how to come together. I know you good and all that kind of thing, man, but this is the old folks business. <laughs> uh, we're getting close to time, so I wonder if there's two or three questions, uh, and then we can respond to them together. Comments, questions? I'll come back to you, Jimmy. I just want to make sure anybody who hasn't spoken gets a chance to say so. We've got another repeat over there. Come on. First timers. Yeah, all right, right here. Uh, I wonder if you could say more about the impediments we have towards organizing a mass movement. You know, you look around and you say things are bad in lots of different ways. Why aren't more of us out in the streets? And I, you said fear. Some people are afraid. But if you could talk more about other kinds of impediments that could help us organize. Well, I can talk about other kinds of impediments, but I'm saying if we could overcome that fear, then that would open up the door and the gate for us to do any and everything that needs to be done. See, because we, for example, you know, looking at all the different kinds, we are afraid to look our friend, our neighbor in the face our relatives, and say, as far as I see it, brother, you know, you are doing this, which is a detriment to us. I don't have the guts to look him in the face and let him know how I see him. And when I give my response, I mean, he can give his response, be it favorably, say, well, let's talk about it. So you thoroughly understand me, and I thoroughly understand you. But see, we, we won't go there. I might put a word or two out there, and somebody say, why you think that? Why you, why you look at, well, you know, that's the word around town. That's what they say. No, ain't the word around town. That's the way I see you. So now I want you, this is me and you talking. I want you to explain to me how can you justify doing what you're doing and not helping the community to overcome the obstacles and shackles that's been put on them. That's, that's where we have to go. And, you know, it's not a big, grandiose, you know, thing that, that we have to do, even though to admit to ourselves that, we could be wrong. We don't even want to take a look at that. But if we're not willing to engage in truth-telling, then all of this other stuff <coughs> is going to be thrown out the window and is not going to have the kind of effect that it needs because we can't get past telling the lies. You know, that's where we're going to have, have to go. Okay. Thank you so much. This is so fantastic. I just want to ask can you. you, can you identify yourself? Oh, I know, independent, I guess. Um, just kind of a from your heart answer. How do you feel about the election of Trump as president of this country? Number <laughs> one, I felt that well, the electing of him was a feeling that I had 
come true, even though I didn't want it. I felt that Trump was going to get elected. The reason I felt he was going to get elected is because there were too many white folks that didn't really want to vote for Trump, but was afraid to speak out in reference to how they felt about him. The other thing is that based on the work that I do and the places that I go and the things that I see, I know that there's a whole lot of closet Trumpites, or however you want to say, that was out there that were just waiting for election day. And a lot of them couldn't even wait because they said, since I can do all of them, I'm going and give my man his thing. I'm knowing all of that was going on, but a lot of us knew that was, that was happening, but wouldn't admit or wanted to admit that there's a lot of folks out there that feel just like Trump feels. And Trump knows it, and that's why he is going down the same road that he is going down, and that's what he did. He just uh, reaped his harvest that he had sown out there among, among his people. But, you know, like I say, I felt it was going to take place because knowing what was out there and not seeing the opposition to that being verbalized that it was going to take place. So it's just some extra work that we have to do to get to where we really need to go. I think there's some people, little by little, is beginning to see that the devastation that will come about based on the things that he is attempting and want to get done. I think a lot of people are beginning to look into that and is beginning to say certain things. See, I believe that all of these other elected officials we got that's in these different positions, I believe if they wasn't scared and are in line or in favor with what Trump is doing, then they could easily change it. Then tell us that we're just about out of time, and I guess uh, we have lots of questions. So then where's the hope? The hope is buried. under the tent that we got over the young folks. And because of so many of us is too afraid, afraid to just pick it up and look under. Because we're scared that one of the young people going to look at their eye and say, okay. But that, that's where it is. See, it's the hope is there if we could overcome fear to the extent that we could accept it. It's kind of like, it's kind of like saying, it's, 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 it's like having something, but you can't see it, you know, because it, it's there. It's, it's in the young people. If we would accept the truth and admit that, we would see that it's there. But we, want to ignore that 
that's where it is, in hopes that we get one more chance to try to do this, and the clock is continued to tick it. But I guarantee you that if you will stop for a moment and look at who we are and what we are doing, then we will see that this is where the hope is. This is where the hope is. It is in our younger people. So if you truly see where it is, then why don't you go ahead and be a man or woman enough to accept and utilize that hope that's there. Because here again, if it is not utilized, it can become spoiled. And once it becomes spoiled, then you can't use it if something or some something or someone else can. So we don't want the else to grab a hold to our young folks and use them not just in a way that will be beneficial for them, but also very harmful and detrimental to us. That's where it is. Of everyone, um, I, <coughs> I really want to thank you Welcome. for your years of struggle, for the wisdom you bring with you, for the spirit that you share with us, a youthful spirit, <laughs> which gets really dangerous when it's combined with the wisdom of age. <laughs> I think you're still a dangerous fellow. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and personally, I, I also just want to express my gratitude for what you did for me. Good. Thank uh, you. In, in opening my eyes and helping me get started on the path that has been a real, well, it's been my life. Sure. And I wonder if I could uh, ask you to uh, conclude here with the song mm -hmm. that you'd like to share with us. All right. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Let's do this one about freedom coming and it won't be long. And that's it. <coughs> now for those how many, let me see the hands of everybody that know that song how many of you know a song that Harold Belafonte did where he said <laughs> if you know that one then we can go with it but we said <laughs> freedom give us freedom Freedom come and it won't be long. And then we're going to put some verses in. <coughs> now I want folks to loosen up on this and just relax and get out of it. Let's get your voices ready. <coughs>
sleeping on the concrete floor or steel bunk. No mattress, no sheets, no nothing but a steel bunk or concrete floor. They also, while they're in parchment, you're on death row, they threaten you every day to be able to go to the further end of the road where the electric chair is. And that's a heck of a thing. At the other end, as I say, is solitary confinement, which they call the hole. The hole is a concrete cell that's six feet wide and six feet long. They put 14 of us in there at one time. It got so hot, sweat was running down the four corners of the wall. Anyway, I talk about that story, you know, in, in my book. I talk about how they tried to set me up with the white woman so I could be charged with 
trying to rape a white woman in jail. And they tried to trick me on walking out of the jail where they could shoot me in the back and say I was attempting to escape and the only way they could stop me, they had to shoot me. So some good stuff in there. <laughs> <laughs> even, even, even back when I got my first real job, Four years old, and I could carry that water. <laughs> Appreciate it, all in all seriousness. You've been listening to Ashcast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.